0: You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, Westside, and uh, thank you for being here. My name is Pastor Evan. I am, well, my name is Evan. I am a pastor. And uh, it is really great that you have joined us today on this holiday weekend. Happy President's Day. Um, I want to start out today by having you um, imagine for a moment uh, that in the very near future, we're not ruled by a secular government, but we're ruled by a Christian government. So, government laws are made in sync with the teachings of the church. Church leaders are involved in governing the people. Uh, The head of the church leads the government and can make the Bible the law of the land. In essence, your pastor is also your president. How does that make you feel? The obvious question is, which pastor? That's the real question. Well, If you're uh, you're thinking what would this scenario actually look like, you don't have to wonder because, ladies and gentlemen, today I give you the supreme governor of the Church of England and king of England himself, King George III. (laughs) How dare you cheer for that tyrant, King George III. Of course, King George, uh, infamous on this side of the pond as the guy who let us get away in the Revolutionary War. So today, we are in church history. And uh, what we're doing uh, in this period of time that we're going to look at today is we are founding the nation, the American dream. This is going to be fun. You guys excited about this? I'm excited about this. Uh, as I said, King George III was one in a long line going all the way back to Henry Eighth in uh, 1534 when the Church of England broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and King Henry VIII decided, you know what? I'm not such a big fan of rules, especially around marriage. And so he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and made himself the head of the church. How convenient. And from then on, uh, the head of the state in the nation of England has also been the head of the Church of England. And this is important because today we're gonna look at kind of the history of what brought the church to where it was by the time the founders signed the Declaration of Independence fought the Revolutionary War and founded the United States. So here's the deal. I know that within this room, and I've had conversations with with many of you, there are people um, on not all sides of, of, of how they view America, but there's people probably right now, you're wearing American flag socks because uh, you're, you're a patriot, you, you love this nation so much, um, you know, you bleed red, white, and blue. There's others who really struggle with the history of the United States and the good and the bad and the ugly. And, uh, and so uh, a talk about the history of the United States is one that brings up a lot of tension. And so what I wanna ask you to do is, as we talk today is, um, maybe set down preconceived notions. I know as I've done research for this message today, I've been surprised at what I've found. Um, in some good ways and some interesting ways. And I would encourage you and ask you, would you go along with me on this ride as we talk about the history of the church as it relates to the founding of the United States. So let me pray for us as we get into this and uh, it's gonna be fun. Lord, we thank you uh, for um, all the ways that you are at work in every season of history, throughout the pages of history as we look back all the way from the beginning, Jesus, when you walked to the earth, Uh, You have been at work refining and shaping and guiding your church. And so today we pray for your church here in this country. We pray for for the American church, that you would continue by your Holy Spirit to refine and shape and guide us. And we pray that you would bless this nation. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, in the 1600s, we have groups coming to the new world. Uh, The Pilgrims were the first in the 1600s. And then about 10 years later, a group of um, Anglican um, churchgoers who felt that the Anglican church or English church was far too close to the rituals and traditions and aesthetics of the Catholic church. They were disgusted by this. And so they made it their mission to purify the Anglican church. Uh, Can anybody guess what their name was? The Puritans. All right. Many of the Puritans stayed in England, and actually the tensions got so great between the crown and these Puritans that it broke out into civil war in 1640. But before that, um, in, uh, I believe it was, I'm going to get some dates wrong, so we'll just say 1620-something. A group of these Puritans came and they founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And here they are, uh, landing and founding the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630. Now. You might have heard that the Puritans came here seeking freedom of religion. That's true, but they weren't seeking freedom of religion for everybody. They were seeking freedom of religion for themselves. In that, really what they did is they imported the king's uh, methods of enforcing a specific religious set of rules on the people. They imported that, but instead of the king making the call, it was them. And so the Puritans land, they set up Massachusetts Bay Colony, and they rule with an iron fist, but it's a religious iron fist. All the rules of the Bible, as they see them, they enforce and enact as law. Um, it's so strict that this gets really dark. As they begin to um, try to govern the people with religious law, things like the Salem witch trials happen, where people are accused of witchcraft and, and uh People are involved in these superstitious beliefs that then get involved in the civic system and people are put to death and hung. Um, It's a dark period. Also they're not very popular. (laughs) The religious laws of the Puritans are so strict and so ruthless uh, that the Puritans um, and their leadership eventually fall out of favor. But while this is happening in Europe, a new era is beginning, the Age of Enlightenment. So in the Age of Enlightenment over in Europe, we have guys that look like this. Some great hairstyles going on. I just wanna point out some of these, Um, but we don't have time, so we're gonna keep moving. But uh, thinkers and scientists like Pascal and Newton, Galileo, uh, later Voltaire, John Locke, many others are quickly replacing medieval thought of the Dark Ages, um, superstitions with things like gravity. Electricity, reason, scientific method. They are bringing the world out of the dark ages with thought and science. And as they do this, they don't find a lot of fans within the church leadership in Europe. And here's the thing, that many times new discoveries, new information and truth can be a threat, not to God, but to powerful religious leaders. And so what happens is many of these um, thinkers and these enlightenment thinkers, especially the earlier group like Galileo and Newton, fall out of favor with the church because the church is afraid of losing the control that it has over the people. And um, what we find by the the later stages of the enlightenment as um, these enlightenment thinkers gain fans and these fans, some of the biggest fans, are guys with names like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. What we find is that these men are not atheistic. Some are, but not all of them. Many of them actually are looking to science and looking to reason and looking to the natural world to find the handy work of God at play. And so I would say this, that truth is no threat to a living God. Emphasis on living, right? If, if, if God is just a tradition of powerful religious people, the new information and truth is going to threaten those power structures. But if God is alive and if God is true, then no truth can threaten him. And so the Age of Enlightenment doesn't bring us to a place where people abandon following Jesus. It brings us to a place where people start abandoning following and being controlled by a superstitious medieval way of thinking. And uh, I, I thought of this uh, when I read about the age of enlightenment out of Psalms 19, where David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, night after night, they reveal knowledge. Centuries and millennia before the age of enlightenment, David is looking up to the heavens and saying, there is knowledge out there. And of course, science wasn't a big thing in David's day, but he was speaking prophetically that everything around us actually reveals the handiwork and the fingerprints of the creator. And so we go back to the colonies now. The Age of Enlightenment is happening in Europe. Uh, Many of our founders are are caught up in this way of thinking. Um, These men uh, that that were Enlightenment thinkers themselves, like Jefferson, would be listed among the Enlightenment thinkers eventually. But back in the colonies, the Puritan rule, still deeply unpopular. And uh, towards the end of the, the reign of the Puritans comes the revivalists. These are men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, these evangelistic preachers who go from town to town, many times preaching uh, out in fields, and thousands of people come to Christ in a new expression of worship. Instead of this compulsory forced worship where there's no other option and no other choice and you either get in line or you get punished, they express a new way where we choose to come and worship a living God. And they're fire and brimstone preachers, no doubt about it, uh, a product of their age. They, they talk a lot about hell and a lot about the punishment of God. And yet the Holy Spirit works through their message and a revival spreads across the colonies in what we call the First Great Awakening. And so we have to understand that those two things are happening, the Age of Enlightenment and the revivalists. And it's this combination of, of these two things. Um, I think I have a picture here of, uh, I think this is, who would this be, Galileo? with his telescope, right? So the Age of Enlightenment. And then on the other side, we have the revivalists, and right in the middle are the founding fathers of the United States, who are in both worlds. They live among this revival that's happening in the colonies, and they also are part of the Age of Enlightenment. And so when they sit down to write the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, it's this background that they write this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This is really, really important to the founding fathers because they've seen what goes wrong when the church and the state are one. They've seen the kind of corruption that comes out when power unchecked is merged with religion. And this is what uh, James Madison said about it. This is why it's bad for the state. He said, the purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe in blood for centuries. Bad for the state. Creates unnecessary wars. We don't wanna go there. In this new world, this new nation, we're gonna have a separation between church and state because it's good for the state. Roger Williams, who founded Rhode Island, he was also an Anglican minister, Um, and then eventually got kicked out by the Puritans of the Anglican Church and founded, co-founded the Baptist Church in America. So if you know any Baptists, they can thank Mr. Williams for that. But here's what Williams said about the idea of the merging of church and state and what that does to our worship. He said, forced worship stinks in God's nostrils. I like that, visceral. Roger Williams uh, believed so strongly uh, that the church needed to stay separate from the powers of government. Why? Because government power corrupts the church. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've seen this over and over again from Constantine on. Every time that the church becomes one with the government, we get problems in the church. Corruption seeps in. the Holy Roman Empire was not good for the church. Why? Because power corrupts faith. And I would say it this way, that the merging of church and state is actually bad for both. It's bad for both. Um, this idea of forced worship, you know, I've, I've, I've officiated enough weddings um, as I'm thinking back, and I've never stood on a stage like this during a wedding. And, and as the vows are being read, I've never heard anyone say, I love you so much because there's literally no other option. I will love you to my dying day because I can't find anyone else. <laughs> Not very romantic, right? And I would say this about our faith. I, I believe this as I looked through the gospel, that Jesus never intended our faith to be like an arranged marriage. He never intended it to be enforced by the rule of law on pain of death. The faith that we enter into was always intended to be a choice because in choice, there's relationship. In choice, there's love. And so um, as we think about this idea of of keeping the church and state separate for the sake of keeping corruption out of the church, we have to understand that that Thomas Jefferson is not the first one to think of this. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is not the first one or James Madison to be aware of the danger when power comes into play with our faith. And I want to take us actually uh, to John chapter six. We're going to look at this in the gospels. Um, John chapter 6 today. And um, I want to look at this story of Jesus when he feeds the 5,000. So Jesus has been teaching and doing miracles on a small scale um, for some time. His reputation has, has increased and increased. But all of his miracles up to this point have been kind of one-offs, um, where he'll heal a single person. Um, this represents when Jesus feeds 5,000 people from a small lunch of some loaves and some fish, it represents the first time where Jesus does a miracle for the masses. And uh, in Jesus' day, food is hard to come by, okay? Uh, People are hungry. He is ministering and preaching among uh, a rural peasant class. And so when he sits with them in in the wilderness and he begins to break bread and it feeds everybody, they're really, really excited, because here's a teacher, possibly a Messiah, who is not just giving us lectures to fill our days, but he's filling our mouths with bread. And this is really exciting to them because they're thinking, man, we've got this charismatic leader and we have unlimited free lunch. He doesn't get better than this. And so they are so excited about this prospect that Jesus might be the one who could not only meet their spiritual needs, but meet their physical needs. That they surround him. And in John chapter 6, verse 15, they surround him. And what do they want to do? They want to make him their king. They want to put him into a place of political power because they're thinking, this is great. We've got our guy. We can install him as king. He can not only uh, be a king who leads us spiritually, but politically against Rome and unlimited free lunch. What could be better? And so Jesus is there among them and he senses and he gets the sense like they are going to force me into a position of political power. And so in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says this, when Jesus saw that they were ready to force them to be their king, what did he do? He slipped away into the hills by himself. I can't imagine a leader today with such popularity Literally, as Pastor Dave told me, literally having people eat out of the palm of his hand. And when they gather around him and say, you are our guy, he slips away. It's interesting, he actually goes up into the hills, and by the end of this story, he actually walks across a lake to get away from the people. Literally walking on the water to avoid these people that are trying to make him king. It's so clear, crystal clear to Jesus that the way the kingdom of God would come and the way that his mission would play out was not gonna happen because of political power or government means. It just wasn't gonna happen. There was something deeper going on with what Jesus came to do. So Jesus refuses to be their political leader. He multiplies the bread the one time, but in verse 34 we see he refuses to do it on command. And when he tells the people what he is offering is actually himself, he goes from their hero to a big disappointment. And look what happens in verse 66. It says this, that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, a a, a teacher who feeds the people and who's willing to become king, that kind of checks all the boxes. But a Messiah who comes not to give us free lunch every day, but to do something different and to offer himself and to walk towards the cross, that's not what we signed up for. And I have to think that sometimes what we project onto Jesus is our ideals for what will get us into a place of influence, power, and control. And what we will find as we follow Jesus, if we are truly disciples of Jesus, as we follow him, there will be a point where we get close enough to him to realize that he's actually not gonna check all the boxes that we think he should in order to put ourselves into a place of power. And when that happens, will we continue to follow him? Or, like many, will we walk away? You know, I have this this idea, this thought when I read that, that as soon as they tried to make him king, that Jesus slipped away, that there are moments when churches try to make Jesus into a political force. And I wonder if it's at that moment that Jesus slips away from our midst. That when we come to Jesus with expectations of things that Jesus had never come to do, that we might lose his presence among us. And so going back to these founding fathers, I think it was actually a stroke of brilliance by the Holy Spirit that guys like Jefferson and Madison said, you know, what, we should keep these things separate. Political power, nothing wrong with it necessarily, but it does not belong merged with the presence of Jesus and the faith that we have in the cross. So this idea of, of power and faith, um, as we've seen, it, it, it weaves its way all the way through because humanity weaves its way all the way through the history of the church. Um, I love what uh, this guy Andy Squires. He's a he's a songwriter, and he wrote this. He said, "Christ is hard to follow because we desire pleasure and power, and He's not offering us any. What He offers is Himself, and for many of us, that is the greatest disappointment of all. The greatest disappointment of all. Maybe that when we come to Jesus, looking for free lunch." what he says is come, take up your cross and follow me. For anyone who tries to keep his life will lose it, but anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so when we, when we understand what discipleship really is, what following Jesus really is, it changes our approach, not only to how we interact with our faith, but how we interact with the world around us. And this is what we're gonna see as we continue looking through uh, the early years of the nation. Um, in the Old Testament, God had a uh, a nation. It was the nation of Israel. All the way through after the, uh, the covenant is made with Abraham and then another covenant is made with Moses, the agreement is that God will be the God of the nation of Israel. God has a nation. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he sits with his disciples and in his teaching, he says, listen, I'm instituting a new covenant, a covenant in my blood. And it's at that moment when Jesus institutes and brings about a new covenant that he could have started a new nation. Jesus instituted a new covenant on the cross. And if he wanted a new nation, he could have started one instead of a nation. Jesus started a church instead of a nation. Jesus started a church and he asked those who were hungry and thirsty to come to him, to lay down your life, to take up your cross and to follow. And this is the most difficult of all things is when we realize what it takes to participate in this new covenant by his blood is to follow him in self-sacrifice. There's this moment when the Pharisees are surrounding Jesus and they're asking him about the, you know, the, the topic of, of his sermons, the, the idea of the kingdom of God coming to earth. And they're looking for it, right? They're wondering like, what, what, what do you see, Jesus? Is it, is it? here? Is it there? Is it, is it in the temple? Is it the nation of Israel? Is it some other force that's going to come and, and conquer Rome? Where is the kingdom of God? Point to it. And this is what Jesus said. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is where? In the midst of you. The kingdom of God is not this external force that's going to come in and, and take over, it's not, gonna, it's not gonna run Rome out. The kingdom of God is gonna emerge from inside of us by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is gonna be reveal itself, not there or there or there, but among you. And we'd find that shortly after this, this gospel of Jesus and this kingdom of God would be opened up not only to the Jews in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth, that every tribe and tongue and nation would be invited in to the kingdom of God that is among us. And so here's the, the elephant in the room, right? Is that if the church is a representation of the kingdom of God, what happens when that church no longer represents the kingdom? What happens when we find um, that the church is not uh, functioning in a way that is following Jesus in ways of self-sacrifice? What happens when the church no longer holds up our side of the bargain when it comes to the covenant that Jesus made on the cross? You know, I've, I've looked through the, the, this period of history um, as we head towards the Civil War. Um, and what many have called the original sin of the nation, which is slavery, uh, it it isn't in decline as churches grow. As churches are established and they begin to grow and and the revivals sweep through the country, churches grow, but so does the institution of slavery. And it makes you question why. Why could this great evil of slavery uh, grow and not decline when churches are growing? Well, it can get pretty heavy and depressing to think about that. And I'd rather not think about that. But it's important that we look at the ways that the church doesn't always get things right. Because if we don't, we'll understand, um, we know this from history, that we'll just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And so as we look at the the dawn of the 19th century, the 1800s, all the way through the Civil War, what we find is that there are those courageous people inside and outside of the church who begin to stand up for the gospel in meaningful ways, even when the church at large is unable to get the job done. And when something like slavery that is so evil, but it becomes the status quo, it is much easier not to rock the boat. It's much easier to leave things alone. But there was a... um, Over in England, there was an evangelical Christian, a member of the House of Commons. His name was William Wilberforce, and uh, he goes to bat to ban the slave trade in Britain. And by 1807, slavery um, is banned in Britain, and the international slave trade is effectively shut down. It would take another 50 years for that to happen in the American South. And it's during those 50 years that an escaped slave and Methodist preacher named Frederick Douglass rises to natural, national prominence and takes the church to task for its indifference of the evils of slavery. He ended up uh, becoming a great friend to President Abraham Lincoln. He sat with him many times and debated uh, the importance of emancipation for slaves now, not later not tiered out, not, not subtly, not in a way that would, that would appease different uh, parties to try to keep the union together. No, the evil of slavery was so great, Frederick Douglass would tell Lincoln. Emancipation has to be complete and it has to be now. On the day of Lincoln's second inaugural, Frederick Douglass stood with Abraham Lincoln in the East Room of the White House and Lincoln told Frederick Douglass, he said, Douglass, there is no man in the country whose opinion I value more than yours. And this is what he wrote to the church. Frederick Douglass said, I dwell mostly upon the religious aspects because I believe that it is the religious people who are to be relied upon in this anti-slavery movement. Do not misunderstand my railing. Do not class me with those who despise religion. I love the religion of Christianity, which cometh from above, which is a pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of good fruits and without hypocrisy. I love that religion, which sends its votaries uh, to bind up the wounds of those who have fallen among thieves. By all the love I bear, such a Christianity as this, I hate that of the priest and the Levite that goes up to Jerusalem to worship and leaves the bruised and wounded to die. I despise that religion, which can carry Bibles to the heathen on the other side of the globe and withhold them from the heathen on this side, which can talk about human rights yonder and traffic in human flesh here. I love that which makes its votaries do to others as they uh, would that others should do to them. I hope to see a revival of it. Thank God it is revived." My goodness. What I love about not just this, but all the writings and, and the words of Frederick Douglass is that he was a prophetic voice to power. Not to say, just burn the whole thing down. Not just to say, uh, you know, churches are bad. Let's just close the doors and do something better. But from within the church, as a, as a Methodist minister of the gospel, he stood and he, he sat in the White House with President Abraham Lincoln. And he spoke truth to power. That it wasn't outside of the church that good things should flow. Just because mistakes had happened and, and the church couldn't get the job done and, and, and many times the church would turn a blind eye to slavery. Frederick Douglass didn't say, you know what? To hell with all of you, quite literally. No, he said, listen, we have to realize that it's within the church and all its influence and all its power that the end to slavery will happen. And what Frederick Douglass is is leading for with Abraham Lincoln and the church is that those who have power would extend it in meaningful ways to those who have none. And so this is where I find uh, the, the beauty of the church in early America, and I think the church today, is that for those who have power, we have a job to do to extend that power to those with no power. And to those with no power, like an escaped slave, like Frederick Douglass, the courage to stand up the courage to speak truth to power in prophetic ways. And if those of us with influence and power, and I'm aware, you know, standing on a stage like this, and the influence I have, that I have a responsibility with great humility to listen to the voice of those who don't have as much power or influence as I do, so that what? So that we can see the kingdom of God happen on earth as it is in heaven. I want to read one more quote um, from an author named Dominique Gilliard. He said, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ still good when it cost me everything. The gospel is not merely a get out of hell free card. It is a divine invitation to participation, to serve as co-laborers with Christ in restoring all things, which includes not only broken people, but systems, structures, and communities that have been perverted by sin to God. You know, there's a beautiful thing when the church rises up and says, we're going to be about the mission of Christ on the earth. Not to arrange political systems to our liking, not to consolidate power, not to become the world's greatest voting block that you've ever seen. But instead, to take whatever power we have and to extend it to the least of these like Jesus did. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul encourages us that we should have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the very nature God, didn't consider that equality with God something to grasp onto. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. And being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so we are invited into this same kind of cruciform life. That a Jesus who had all the power and yet walked willingly to the cross in in the greatest act of self-sacrifice would invite his disciples to do the same thing. That where we have power and influence as as citizens in, in the mightiest nation on the face of the planet, that we would, as the church, realize that the invitation of Christ is to take up our cross, to lay down our lives and to follow him. we sang, um, and we're going to close here, we sang today uh, the song Amazing Grace, and if you know the story of, of how that was written, John Newton was a slave trader um, who had a radical conversion experience and he gave up uh, trading in the slave trade and he became an Anglican minister and he sat down and he wrote those beautiful words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And he would become the pastor and mentor to a young William Wilberforce, who, as I said, would would push through legislation in the House of Parliament to ban international slave trade. You see, when God gets a hold of our heart, we, we might be surprised at what work he will do through us to bring reconciliation and rights to wrongs. And so I want to close uh, today out. Um, I know this can feel kind of heavy. Obviously, these topics are heavy. Um, but close out with this realization that it's the grace of God on His church that is still at work, still stirring us up, still bringing up um, those streams of His presence that will continue to push us forward into looking more like Jesus. And as we receive his grace today, we ask this question, Jesus, how can I lay my life down? How can I follow you? How can I be a disciple of Jesus? So Jesus, today we receive your grace on our lives. We thank you for the ways that throughout the centuries uh, you've both preserved your church and you've, uh, You've created beauty in the middle of of difficulty and struggle and tension and mistakes. And in in those places, your presence has brought us through. We thank you for the great grace that's on your church today in this nation. And we pray that it would continue to grow as we willingly follow you.